Good morning, everyone. Give me a minute to uh, get set up here. But as I do, I wanted to uh, start out this morning by with a little self-deprecating humor. Uh, <laughs> that's the best kind because that means that I'm not ripping on any of you guys. But, um, all right, I think I'm ready to roll here. So I, uh, I take a number of pills each morning. Um, I take one for acid reflux, I take one for allergies, and then I've been taking like, uh, the rest of them are vitamin supplements. I, I take uh, vitamin A and I take vitamin C. So then, um, a couple of months ago, I found uh, these advertisements always coming over that you can actually take these supplements that'll give you all of the nutrients you need for all the fruits and vegetables you're supposed to eat every day. And since I'm not really great at eating fruits and vegetables every day, I said, yeah, I think I'm going to buy those. So um, I've been taking those for a little over two months, and those are additional four pills. And so then a few weeks ago, I kind of felt like my memory wasn't quite what it was used to be. So I started researching uh, supplements to help out with memory. And I found the best one, and it was called uh, Dynamic Brain. And so I started taking two of those. But see here, that, that adds up to 10 pills. And so I figured in order not to get an upset stomach, I'll take five pills before breakfast, and I'll take five pills after breakfast so that I don't get that upset stomach. So one morning, I, you know, I took the five pills, I ate breakfast, and then I come back upstairs where my bathroom and all my pills are sitting, and I pick up this bottle of Dynamic Brain, and I couldn't remember if I had taken those before breakfast. <laughs> so that, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? The reason I share that story with you this morning is because Throughout the story of Acts, we've been focusing on the gospel and the good news of God's amazing grace, his favor in our lives that is undeserved. It's a grace that tells us that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't treat us as our mistakes and failures deserve. I know that some of you have probably spent the last week or week in recent history in one way or another beating yourself up over what you think are stupid things you've done or said. God wants to tell you this morning, stop it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so why are you condemning yourself? Your berating self-talk are not the words of your loving Heavenly Father. So live each day by His grace, realizing that every sin, every failure, every mistake, everything that you think is stupid that you've done, it's already been dealt with at the cross of God's amazing grace. This is the message of the Gospel. This morning, as we continue to travel with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys through Acts, we're in chapter 18, and so we're about two-thirds our way through the journey. We've seen actual history of how Christ started his church that carries us through to the church today. We've seen fascinating historical details of the people God has used, the powerful things that he has done, the ways he has supernaturally worked and intervened in people's lives as they face difficult and challenging times, quite often they angry and hateful opposition satanic opposition attempting to destroy the forward movement of the church. We've seen a primary focus on the Apostle Paul, once who was the primary persecutor of Christ and his church, who after a supernatural encounter with the risen Christ became the boldest of professors of faith in Christ. 
Through Paul's missionary journeys, we've seen many people come to Christ in salvation, baptized, forming churches in every city and town uh, that he and his ministry partners go. And I know that many of you have probably thought at one time or another, I could never be Paul. You're right. You see, God isn't calling you to be Paul. He's asking you to be you in the context of your world and to live for him and represent him in your context with your personality, with your gifts, with your interests. He's asking you to take the real-life applications that we can find in the real-life historical accounts of real-life people and acts and translate them to your life and your world today. Sam has done a wonderful job as our tour guide up to this point. The Holy Spirit has brought the book of Acts to life through Sam, and, and I love your preaching, brother. And some of the applications he has brought to us is God is calling us to be men and women of the Bible. Meeting God daily in his word where we find his grace and his love and his wisdom and strength to sustain a chief day. People who start and end their day in the word and prayer. God is calling us to be those people. God is also calling us to be men and women of the gospel who are willing to take the challenge of bringing the love and truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, within context with the people who surround our lives every day. You see, the thing about it is, is that you have no desire, courage, or power to do the second without the first. You actually need to be in that relationship with Christ every day. You need to be pursuing him in the word and prayer to get the strength and the courage and the wisdom that you need to actually be men and women of the gospel. So I need to ask you this morning, has anything changed in recent weeks making those applications to your life? Or have you gone basically unchanged and forgotten all about it? These truths from God's Word, when you choose to live by them, they will revolutionize your Christian life. They'll begin to renew a passion as you live for the purpose of God. They'll turn a boring, mundane existence into a fulfilling and satisfying way to live. We need to start believing that that is the reality of the truths that we study each and every Sunday, that we, when we come to Him in the Word and prayer, these truths that come off the pages and begin to speak to us and who we are and the way we are and what God is calling us to do, that when we apply them, they revolutionize our Christian life. Can you actually think of anything more thrilling than getting to spend time with the God who created you, loved you, and saved you? And then being sent out by Him to lead another person to saving faith in Christ? Is there anything that can really be more thrilling in the world than that? Come on, church. Let's make a commitment now that as we leave this building today, we're going to live out these challenges that God has placed before us. Amen? The title of this morning's message is Living for the Gospel in Sin City. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 18, where we left off last week. And we're going to read verses 1 to 17. And it reads, starting in verse 1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them from the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But, sin but since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray this morning through your Holy Spirit that you would help me to speak the truth of the realities that you've placed here in this chapter of Acts. Help us to, in some ways, see ourselves as those who also live in Sin City and help us to understand the truths that you want us to apply to our lives so that we can be bold and courageous, loving people of the gospel within the context of where we live and who surrounds our life each and every day. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So starting in Acts 18.1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Last Sunday we saw that Paul was ministering in Athens where instead of being violently driven out like most of the cities thus far, he was more dismissed with polite contempt. So he moved on to the city of Corinth. And to give you a little background about Corinth, Corinth was built on the north side of an Acropolis that rose 1,886 feet and provided an almost impregnable fortress for the city. The city of Corinth was a crossroads between east and west, and it was an isthmus that had ports on both the east and west sides. Travelers would come from all sides of the Mediterranean, including North Africa, and the city was a crossroad for travelers and sailors and traders. Corinth became a center of economic and political influence and became a prosperous city. It, was, it had the feel of having an economic boon. It was the chief city of Greece, both commercially and politically. Because the travel by ship around the peninsula from port to port was so treacherous, they had built a three-and-a-half-mile-long road of wooden logs, wooden rollers, where the ships were dragged on these rollers from one harbor to the other in order to avoid the long, treacherous trip around Cap, um, Cape Malia at the southern tip, where the treacherous winds and waves of the Mediterranean Sea would place any ship and its cargo in peril. Smaller ships could be hauled fully loaded across this three-and-a-half-mile stretch from one port to the other, while cargoes of larger ships could be transported by wagons from one port to the other. The population during New Testament times was probably over 200,000, and it was made up of local Greeks, freedmen from Italy, Roman army veterans, businessmen, government officials, 
Orientals from Asia. It also included a large number of Jews. And every two years, they held the Pan-Hellenic Isthmian Games, which was similar to our Olympics, where athletes and spectators from all over the world would come. Corinth was a center for worship of the Greek gods, which in Paul's day had at least 12 temples in the city. It seems that the Greeks had a different god or goddess for everything. And do you need safety and success on the open seas? Maybe you're a fisherman or a trader. Well, you worship and pray to Poseidon, the god of the sea. Are you a soldier in the army or a colonel or a general and you need success in war? Well, you worship Ares. Do you need a successful harvest? Well, you worship and pray to Demeter, the god of the harvest. Maybe you're tired of the weather being cloudy and rainy all the time, so you ask Apollo, the sun god, to bring some sun. For you hunters, do you want to ensure that you get a deer this year? Then you start early to pray to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. But most significantly, Corinth was a center for the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, sex, procreation, and the protector of prostitutes. Historical accounts tell us that this, at this time, this temple would have over a thousand sacred prostitutes who were actually sex slaves purchased by the owners of the temple. These prostitutes were both male and female, for homosexuality was condoned in the city and was condoned throughout the Greek and Roman culture. Worshippers at the temple practiced religious prostitution and would often be sent throughout the city selling their wares. From the 5th century B.C., if you were said to have been Corinthianized, someone was describing you as a person who was sexually immoral, which means that Corinth had a reputation throughout the world for being sexually immoral. This is the town, this is the city that Paul has just come into on a missionary journey. I want you to see the comparison of the culture in Corinth to our culture today to help you understand that there really is nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we can think that, you know, the scriptures and these stories that we're reading and the things that we're trying to glean from them, well, they're, they're old and they're ancient, you know, they're outdated, but they're just as relevant of their day as they are to us today. And some of the comparisons that we can make through the Corinth culture to our culture is that it was wealthy and materialistic. It was full of business and industry. It was a center for sports and entertainment. It was full of false religions, a place of idol worship, a place where Christianity did not have much of an influence. Corinth was a culture rampant with sexual immorality of every kind and was applauded by the citizens. I believe this account of Paul's missionary journey to Sin City will give us insights as to how we live and find the strength and courage to share the gospel today in our own sin city. It's so important to remember that as great a disciple as the Apostle Paul was, he was not Jesus. He was a human being like you and I who wrestled with temptations and sin. He describes his struggle, the struggle we all face in Romans chapter 7 and verse 19, where he says, what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And, and doesn't that really, that, that verse right there, doesn't it really describe all of our own struggles with sin in our life, with temptation? And Paul's being real here as he's writing to the Romans, and ultimately he's being real with us to say, hey, you know, I'm not this super saint who has this, 
shirt with a big S on it that's under my tunic. I'm, I'm everyday Paul just like you guys are, and I struggle with the same things you do. And that's the one thing that's important for us to get as we look at these biblical characters, whether they're Old Testament, Abraham and Moses, whether they're Peter or Paul, they're real people with real struggles, with real trials, and they go through very much similar things that we do. And so we can't look at this and say, well, the life of Paul is unattainable for us because he was a human being just like us. The success that Paul has in his ministry efforts can't be us. It's not attainable. But see, he's not some super saint. He's using his gifts and talents and his life experiences within the context of what God's called him to do to make a difference in non-Christians' lives. So Paul walks alone. He's probably dejected from his experience in Athens, and he's walking into a culture that's rampant with immorality. He's surrounded by sexual immorality, materialism, idolatry, by people who reject Jesus, just as you and I are surrounded by these things in our culture today. We need insights from this text, from Paul's life experience, who lived 18 months in this culture, on how to continue to live courageously for the gospel. I'm going to give you four insights that I see from this text that we can apply to our lives to live courageously for the gospel in Sin City. The first is you need people. You can't do this alone. The second is you need to make sharing the gospel your primary focus. Number three, you need a power that is beyond yourself. And four, you need the promises of God to rely on, promises that he is going to be with you And he's going to protect you as you give yourself to the ministry of the gospel. So let's take a look at the first insight. You need people. You can't do this alone. Paul arrives in Corinth alone, and as he awaits the arrival of his friends Timothy and Silas, he seeks out a location where he can engage in his tent-making business. He needs to provide for himself. And in Acts 18, 2 and 3, it says, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So Paul arrives here in Corinth, and he appears to seek out... Okay, I'm sorry, this just jumped. Let me get back to my place. So he seeks out some people that he can work with in the business of tent making. There were no churches established yet, so he needed to find a way to support himself while he continued his mission of testifying to Jesus being the Christ. So he meets a remarkable couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and they were Jews who at one point left or lived in Rome but were ejected by Claudius. And what I came to understand why Claudius ejected all the Jews from Rome was because there was all these disputes coming up and it appears that it was about Christ. And so he gets so tired of these debates and these, these fracases, you know, kind of spilling up into the town. He just says, Jews, you know, you guys all got to get out of here. So then Aquila and Priscilla moved to Italy and finally reached Corinth where they were able to start a business making tents. Paul was invited to stay with them and work in their business. We have every reason to believe Aquila and Priscilla were already believers at this point, And while Luke doesn't record their conversion story in Acts, later in this very chapter, in verse 26, we see them actually um, kind of speaking to Apollos about how he was off in some areas of his teaching and preaching. 
So Paul doesn't arrive in Sin City, he's alone, and he doesn't go off to some hotel alone and try to turn on Cinemax and find some sexually provocative, you know, things, or or walk over to the uh, temple for Aphrodite and see what's going on there, does he? He immediately seeks out friendship, fellow Christians of whom he can experience fellowship and mutual support and encouragement and accountability as he lives in Sin City. You cannot live for the gospel of Jesus Christ all alone in Sin City without falling to the temptations that bombard your life. Paul is doing his tent-making job during the week, and it doesn't say this here, but from what we know of Paul, he is more than likely doing some personal witnessing to friends and co-workers and customers of Aquila and Priscilla. He's building on the foundational relationship friendships that they had already started. From everything we see and read from Paul, we can be certain that he didn't compartmentalize his life from the secular and the sacred. His entire life was on mission for Christ. He didn't say, my tent-making business is all about earning a living, and that's separated from my gospel ministry. And when I go to the synagogue on Sunday, that's all about my gospel ministry. We know that Paul lived the life each and every day. It's how God wants you to see your workplace environment as a mission field for God. That you're an ambassador. You've been sent into your workplace environment to help broken, hurting people find Jesus. And you've never been called by God to take on this gospel mission alone. Find a Christian co-worker in the workplace. Find a friend in church or a Christian family member to partner with you to be on mission for Christ. Find ways to introduce your non-Christian and and your uh, family and your friends to members of your church family who will partner with you, who will encourage you and pray for you in bringing the ministry of the gospel to those non-Christians in your lives. You know, and I was thinking about that for myself, and, and, and I've been praying for my brother and sisters for decades. But I have never once asked anyone of my church family to pray with me for their salvation. You see, sometimes when we're in the workplace, sometimes when we're... We have relationships with non-safe people. We think that this mission is just all about me trying to help them find Christ. And the reality is, is we need help. We need support. We need encouragement. We need people to be praying with us for those very people that we're broken in our heart and burdened for, that we want them so desperately to see Christ. This has never been a mission that you take on alone. And so let's start finding ways that we can partner together to help one another in this ministry of the gospel. Let's move on in Acts 18, verses 4 and 5. It says, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When Silas and Timothy arrived with financial support from the Macedonian churches, Paul releases the business of tent making back to Aquila and Priscilla and he begins to focus exclusively all of his time in preaching and witnessing to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. This leads us to our second insight into how we are to live for the gospel in Sin City and that is you need to make sharing the gospel your primary focus. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Non-Christians today tend to think that the Bible is some old, outdated book that is no longer relevant to our technologically advanced society. They believe that there are ancient words about ancient times and that there's no real-life application to be found for us today. But when you actually choose to dive into the Scriptures, you see, as we are seeing in our text and throughout 
Acts, that the words of God, they're timeless. Because we're already seeing that the same things that we experience in are the same challenges, the same trials, the same temptations, the same sin is the same thing that they were experiencing in Corinth. And so the things that God has to tell us from, about, from Acts here are the very things that we need to know on how to live in Sin City here in our lives. These words in the Scriptures, they're words of absolute truth, meaning that they are relevant for all people in all places and for all times. And the reason for this is twofold. People's problems throughout history have always been the same. That's namely sin. And people's solution to that problem is always the same. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Their need for God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. So when Paul goes into Sin City, the gospel is always his primary focus. He's not arguing with people in Corinth over sexual immorality and materialism and idolatry. He reveals this in his first letter to the church in Corinth that was established after his work. We're seeing right here where he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, When I came to you, I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul doesn't walk into Sin City and begin to verbally attack or argue with people over their politics, over their false gods they worship, or pursuing materialism as their God, or confronting them over their sexual sin. And if that's what you've been doing on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or with your non-Christian friends or family or neighbors or co-workers, your efforts, I'm sure, have been very frustrating and exasperating. And I hear Christians say, why can't they see these issues the way I see them? Man, I think Christians today violate Paul's example all the time. I hear Christians all the time debating or arguing on social media and even in person with non-Christians about issues, not to reason with them or persuade them about the gospel, as it says Paul does here. And I would bet that a number of you, if you've been doing that, have been ex those people that you're doing this with are feeling judged and condemned by you. These arguments are all about the issues of Sin City that Christians are involved in today. About politics, about guns, about homosexuality, about abortion, about witchcraft, about immigration, about racism. Issues that are important, but issues that will not save one single person. These are not the issues of salvation. These are the issues of discipleship. Paul knew that for someone to believe rightly about sexual immorality or materialism or idolatry that was rampant in Corinth, that that person first needed to give their life to Christ. Christ is always the remedy for sin. Christ is always the key to transformed lives. He is the key to transform perspectives and worldviews. Christ is what people need, and it's time for us to start reasoning with people and persuading people about Jesus. If someone asks you what you believe about an issue as related to Sin City, go ahead and tell them what you believe, your biblical view on it, and then direct the conversation to their need for Christ. Let's move to Acts 18, verse 6. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your, your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
So the reaction to Paul's message in the synagogue of Jesus being the crucified Christ was opposition and anger. Once again, they says they became abusive towards Paul. And it says, Paul shook out his clothes in protest and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This was an Old Testament reference to Nehemiah that the Jews would understand. It was also a reference to what Jesus told the disciples that when they entered a town and they rejected his message that they should shake the dust off of their sandals. And Paul tells them their blood would be on their own heads. He's letting them know that they're responsible for whatever future curse or hardship they faced because of their rejection of Christ. And I think the message in that for us is when people's hearts are hardened by stubborn pride, it's time to move on. So Paul moves his gospel ministry focus to the Gentiles. And in that, I'm not saying don't ever give up praying for the people. But sometimes when you have tried over and over and you meet resistance after resistance, maybe it's time then to move on. God's going to lead you to somebody else. But in the meantime, pray for that person. Prayer can soften that heart. Prayer can start making that heart moldable and pliable to once again approach them later. The third point that we want to glean for this, from this text is you need a power beyond yourself. Verses 7 and 8. And Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So amazingly, Paul leaves this abusive situation in the synagogue. And what does he do? He goes right next door to her house, right next to the synagogue the home of a man named Titius Justus, which actually became the center of the young church in Corinth and was probably where the first house church met, right next to this Jewish synagogue. Paul certainly had a lot of guts, didn't he? I don't think that after I just was verbally abused and accosted or whatever went on in that synagogue that I would just go right next door and try to continue on my ministry. And maybe I'll head over to the other side of town. How many of us would have given up at that point? Man, being a witness just isn't working out as I hoped. Maybe it's time to lose myself into my tent making again. But you know, more than likely, you've just been barking up the wrong tree. Paul figured out that he was barking up the wrong tree in the synagogue, so he goes next door and ends up establishing a, a, place, a central place of ministry to continue sharing the gospel in Corinth. And here is where some exciting, powerful things begin to happen. Paul goes to the house of Titius Justice, described as a worshiper of God. He's a Gentile believer in Christ who lived next door. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue where Paul was just verbally abused, he gets saved and his entire household gets saved. And then it says that many of the people living in Sin City get saved. Paul had the courage and the boldness to make public professions right there in Sin City. The power we see in Paul is from the Lord, and it's available to all of us. 
Jesus was clear that this power emanates from him through the daily time we spend with him in the word and prayer. In John 15, 5, he says, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember, we started out by focusing on the last two challenges that Sam laid before us from the book of Acts and become men and women of the word to find that time daily with the Lord. And then the last time was the challenge to be people of the gospel where they're both intimately wed. We have no power and strength to see fruit born from our efforts in the gospel if we aren't spending daily time with the Lord in the Word and prayer. And so that's why the challenge actually lets be people who are both because they're so intimately wed together. The fifth, the, the final challenge that I lay before you this morning and the thing that we need to understand from this text is that you need the promises of God to rely on. Promises of His protection and provision so that when things get hard, you go back and you remember His promises. You remember that they emanate from His character, a character that's never changing, and He is trustworthy and He can be relied upon. In Acts 18, 9-11, says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So we just saw Paul actually have some successes and some people are getting saved, but it appears here in this moment that God knew something that was going on in Paul's heart. Maybe it was from the past experiences in other cities. Maybe he was still focusing on being abused in the synagogue but ultimately, he must have seen that Paul's courage may have been waning. That even after such boldness, that fear could have been gripping his heart. And, you know, I think that's typical. That we've probably all experienced is that at times when we have ministry successes, all of a sudden Satan comes calling and starts attacking us over in our thought life and different things and, and starting to bring fear. God comes to him in a vision and reassures him with these two promises. Paul, I am with you. Paul, I will protect you. How precious are the promises that God has made to his children? 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. For the last 11 days, I've been seeking God's renewal in my own prayer life. And I've been journaling scriptures and quotes on prayer and reflecting on prayer as I'm journaling. And then I immediately get on my knees and actually start praying. Go figure, I'm, I'm studying on prayer, so I, I go pray. And I came across this promise in Isaiah 26.3. You, O God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you. And what a, what a beautiful promise. That as we keep our focus on God, on the character of God, on the unchanging attributes of God, on the love and the grace and mercy of God, that, that God would actually choose to have a relationship with us, the God who, of the universe, the eternal God, the God who made all things, the God who knows all things, who's all-powerful, almighty, who's perfectly holy. There's no stain or wrinkle or blemish. There is no imperfection. There's no moral compromise. He is perfect light. He is purity. He would choose to have a relationship with a sinner like me. And he says that 
I'm going to give you perfect peace as long as you keep my mind fixed on me. And you know, the, the beauty of it is that the more that we spend time with him, the more we get to know him, the more that trust develops and that faith develops in us to the point where we begin to be willing to step out with courage and faith, knowing that he's with us and that he's going to protect us. Finally, let's close this morning in the final verses in this chapter 18 that for this morning. Verses 12 through 17. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him to court. This man they charged was persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to our law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. And what I want us to see just in these final verses is that God can use anyone or anything to further the gospel. First, he uses the verbal abuse of those at the synagogue to open the house next door to gospel ministry. Then he uses a former ruler of the Jewish synagogue and his entire family who get saved to be the starting members of a house church. It looks like Paul is going to be quickly driven out of Corinth, just like so many other cities and towns, but now God actually uses an unbeliever, Gallio, who is the local governor, to squelch an all-out attack against Paul. He shuts down the persecution, basically allowing Paul to continue on with his gospel ministry for 18 months. His ministry started out just like so many other cities, and it didn't last long because he was experiencing intense persecution. So he moves on to another city and another city. Here he gets to stay for 18 months, and what results from that is a whole bunch more people getting saved and a really strong church being established in Sin City. Throughout this, we once again see Paul's missionary pattern. It starts with tent making. But within that, it's relationship building. He's he finding support from the locals. He works to earn a living while he's preaching the gospel. On the Sabbath, he preaches to the Jews in the synagogue and experiences rejection. So then his ministry focus changes to the Gentiles and people get saved, as some of the Jews are actually within that as well, and they're being baptized. He establishes a local church, in this case a house church in Titius Justice Home. And then he begins the work of discipleship. He teaches the Word of God to the new Christians. And as we can see, if you took a look at the two letters to the Corinthians, he begins to teach them the truth about these things as sexual immorality and materialism and idolatry. Do you see? The gospel is important for your non-Christian family friends because they need to be transformed so they can begin discipled on the issues that you're arguing with them about and debating with them about. Because people aren't going to change their minds about those issues until Christ transforms them from the inside out. So then they begin to understand because they got the power of the Holy Spirit now and then they can understand the Word of God. So when you bring the truth about sexual immorality or abortion or homosexuality or whatever it is issues you're debating and finding with them over, they begin to be able to understand. And so then they begin to change their mind about those very issues that you've been arguing with about that they're not saved and they can't understand what you're talking about.
and a spiritual tool throughout this, throughout the whole book of Acts, it's the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Do you guys really understand how powerful this word is through you, through the Holy Spirit, when you share it with another person? I was talking with a, with a longtime friend of mine, and we at least get together monthly, and, and we have a kind of a dual mentoring discipleship relationship, and he, he's talking with his son who who is unsaved, and he said, you know, Jim, what I realized, I talked to him a lot about from ideas from my head and stuff, but I realized that it's not going to change until I give him some words from this book. You see, your ideas and your suggestions, and even if they're Christian, in and of themselves really have no power. But when you begin to bring the truth of the Scriptures and the truth of the Gospel and the words from these pages, the Holy Spirit can begin to use them to actually invade these persons' heart and mind and change them. So let's get back to using the Word of God as we minister and we talk to people about the wonders of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Amen? Chris, if you want to come on up. You know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's really important to close this time with some prayer. And we've been talking a lot about the Gospel and I don't think there's a better time right now because as you've been sitting here, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit has brought names of people in your life. And I think there'd be no better time than right now than for you to sit where you are. And if you want to do that with your wife and husband, if you want to do that with your friend, get together and start just right now praying for some of those people that your heart is burdened for. And then if you have a little more time, begin to start just praying for our community and the impact that you desire God to see us have and those who don't know him. So as Chris is doing some music, spend some time with the Lord, actually praying for those people that you want to see know him.